Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me on the show once again. As I talk to, you know the deal, I talk to an amazing expert from around the world of human knowledge about all the amazing shit they know that I don't know, that you might not know. All of our minds are going to get blown together. We're going to have an incredible time. Now, before we get going, I just want to remind you that I am going on tour this summer. If you live in or near Phoenix, Arizona, Boston, Massachusetts, Arlington, Virginia, Nashville, Tennessee, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, or New York City, head to adamconover.net slash tour dates. You can see me do a brand new hour of stand-up. I'm so excited for you to see it. If you come out, I'll shake your hand. I'll take a selfie with you. It's going to be wonderful. Please come out. And just to remind you, if you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. You'll get bonus podcast episodes, exclusive stand-up I don't post anywhere else, and you can join our live community book club where we read a nonfiction book together and discuss it with the author. We just had our book club session for Judith Krizel's Never Enough, The Experience and Neuroscience of Addiction, and our next book, which we'll be meeting about in August, is T. Nguyen's Games Agency as Art. We had such a blast talking to him on this very podcast that now we are all reading his book together and chatting with him about it live. If you want to sign up and get all those awesome perks, head to patreon.com slash adamconover and I thank you for doing so. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're talking about mental illness. You know, mental illness is something that humans have been struggling with for literally as long as there have been humans. Schizophrenia, mania, depression, all of these issues have bedeviled humans throughout our entire history, and we have tried to cure them for just as long. But the sad truth is, after millennia, we still have really no effective treatments for them. For real, <laughs> practically none. And it's not as though we haven't tried. Going back to the dawn of history, when people weren't acting right, they would literally do surgery on each other's skulls. This was called trepanation, and it involved cutting out a chunk of a person's skull to change their behavior. And... You know, it probably did change your behavior, but not for the better. In the Middle Ages, mental illness, like other illnesses, was attributed to an imbalance of the different fluids flowing through a person, the humors, and this meant the cure for a serious mental illness might be bloodletting or inducement to vomit. Not a pretty picture, and also not very helpful in curing bipolar disorder. But as silly as those remedies seem, they are not much worse than what came next. In the modern period, the idea arose that you could just push all the mentally ill people into a filthy asylum, and then there they might be, uh, well, if not cured, just sort of kept away from everybody else. They treated it more as a storage problem than a human one. After that, we got Freudian analysis, which is very interesting in a literary sense, but, you know, not really super scientific psychology per se. And then, finally, we entered the era of modern psychology and a whole new suite of bonkers treatments, from removing teeth to putting the mentally ill into comas to electroshock therapy and, of course, that iconic modern update of trepanation, the lobotomy. Now, today, as I speak to you in 2022, our most recent approach is mass pharmaceutical intervention. We drug people who are mentally ill. And... 
All you really need to do is look around to see that it's not really working. I mean, everyone is screaming from the rooftops that we have a mental health crisis, rates are as high as ever, and we are not making a dent in them. The sad truth is that mental illness is just one of the most complex, difficult, intractable problems facing human medicine. There are no easy fixes, and unfortunately, we're also pretty hazy on what the complex, difficult fixes might be. Which is why I get so frustrated when people blame social problems like homelessness or gun violence on mental illness and say, we need to solve mental illness before we can solve those problems. Oh, yeah, just solve one of the most intractable problems in human history? We'll get right on that. Do we need to cure cancer, too, before we can treat people's toothaches? Like, what the fuck? Now, look, I may be overstating the case a little bit. We do understand more about the human brain and the human mind than we did centuries ago. But we still have to grapple with how little we actually know if we're ever going to get closer to solving this problem. So to walk us through the unsparing history of mental health treatment on the show today, we have a world-renowned expert. Andrew Skull is a professor of sociology at UC San Diego, and he is one of the foremost historians of medicine and madness. His most recent book is Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. It is beyond an honor to have him on the show today. Please welcome Andrew Skull. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So you've written a book about the history of psychiatry um, and our attempt as a society to treat mental illness generally. Uh, I have to say that I don't always feel that we as a society are treating mental illness particularly well, especially here in the United States. You may feel differently in England, but... I just like to ask, like, you know, how does psychiatry work? Like, are we, are we, are we, are we helping people? Is it, it right. are things better than they were in the past? Well, um, let me say this: uh, I'm not somebody who's written a book that's a, a narrative of straightforward progress from early darkness to modern scientific enlightenment. But I'm also not somebody who's a technological luddite. I don't think. There's been zero progress, but I think it's easy to exaggerate how much progress we've made. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about the problem of serious mental disturbance is how difficult it is, how many smart minds have tried to come to terms with this over more than 200 years, and how slow the progress has been, whether one looks to the actual therapeutics, how we treat people, or to the underlying knowledge about where these terrible kinds of suffering come from. Uh, and, and while we, we still don't know, if, if you ask what's the cause of schizophrenia, presuming we can take these labels at face value for the moment, what's the cause of schizophrenia? What's the cause of bipolar disorder? Why do people become depressed? The answer is we don't really know. Mm. And because of that absence, we have some clues, we have some speculations, we have uh, a profession in psychiatry that over the last 40 or 45 years has placed all its bets on biology as the sole answer to these problems, which I think is a mistake. Um, but uh, the answer is all the work we've done in neuroscience, in genetics, uh, other attempts to understand the the um, neurobiology of the brain, uh, as yet, have led for, to very little progress. 
And that's obviously hampered our ability to treat diseases. Uh, it's not unknown for medicine to not, in general, to not know the causes of a disease and yet be able to come up with effective treatments. The history of psychiatry, as I show in my book, is that um, in the desperation of patients, families, and the physicians themselves, we've often resorted to some pretty extraordinary measures, which often have harmed rather than helped the patients. We live at the moment, of course, in the era of psychopharmacology, uh, the era of drugs as the primary way we treat serious forms of mental illness. And unfortunately, those drugs arrived on the scene, whether you look at uh, antipsychotics or antidepressants, they arrived on the scene in the 1950s. And we haven't got better drugs now than we did then. And the drugs mm. do help some people quite, quite a bit. They help relieve symptoms. They're not penicillin. They don't yeah. cure, uh, but they do make uh, it easier for some patients uh, to uh, live with their mental illness. They damp down, for example, with schizophrenics. They, they help to relieve some, to some degree uh, the hallucinations and the delusions which plague them. But they don't really deal with the more negative symptoms of schizophrenia, the uh, loss of, an, of pleasure, the, the, the kind of confusion of thought and language, the social isolation, those kinds of things, the drugs we have simply don't touch. And then there's another problem, whether you look to the antidepressants or the antipsychotics, they come with a lot of side effects. Mm -hmm. And you have some patients for whom the side effects are manageable and the drugs help, if not cure. Um, and those are the lucky ones. And we need to recognize that that's the case. Then there are a group of people in the middle for whom the side effects are so bad that on balance, it's hard to recommend the drugs. Yeah. And finally, at the other end, there are a group of people who simply don't respond at all. And what they get are the side effects, which can be life-threatening. So yeah. with current antipsychotic medications, so-called second-generation or atypical antipsychotics, uh, people tend to experience massive weight gain as much as 30, 40, 50 pounds yeah. uh, within a year. Uh, they develop diabetes, they develop heart problems. Uh, so the trade-off, I mean, <laughs> with all medications for psychiatric illness or for regular illness, uh, you know, there isn't a free lunch. Uh, drugs of all sorts come with potential side effects, but the ones we've got to deal with psychiatric illness they're the best thing we have, but um, they only work for some, and they come at often at very, very heavy price. So um, that side of things is is difficult. And in the, the the present, the major drug companies who have made billions of dollars uh, off these these drugs have decided that they don't have an obvious way forward. This isn't an area where they want to invest research dollars. And basically, they disbanded research. So into, that's into a real pills problem. for those for those conditions like schizophrenia. Yes. 
So wow. if you if you look at a company like Pfizer, for example, they've essentially disbanded their research on, on treatments for mental illness. Wow. Um, so we're stuck with things that offer some relief to some people and where the next improvements, assuming that you can rely simply on drugs, which I think is an oversimplification. But even if that, if you assume that drugs are going to be the answer, the real problem in 2022 is that the, the places with the most research funding have given up. They've said wow. uh, we've suffered reputational damage because we mess with the research around these drugs. In some cases, companies have been fined billions of dollars for mismarketing, for suppressing research that didn't meet their needs. Uh, and, and they've just moved on. And uh, they found other areas that are um, much more lucrative, much more promising from their commercial point of view. But that leaves the mentally ill in this very unsatisfactory situation. Yeah, I, I mean, this just reading you know, your, your book is is just out. And so I've only had a chance to read the introduction. But you talk about how our treatment of mental illness has really transformed over the past you know, it's gone through different phases in the past few yeah. centuries. And when I look at that, I, I think that, OK, there, that, there's some similarities to the rest of the medical you know, world. For instance, you know, we used to believe in, you know, the four humors and balancing the humors. <laughs> right. And, and oh, well, right. they were able to cure some things that way. But obviously it was ultimately pseudoscientific. And, you know, we our, our understanding of the body has improved. And now, you know, diseases like cancer, for instance, even though we have not you know, we, we don't have a quote cure for cancer. Our treatments are so much better that, you know, survivability rates have skyrocketed. We've, we've improved yeah. in all these specific ways in psychiatry or our treatment of mental illness. We've gone through these stages. Like, I mean, just starting from Freud and, you know, the talking cure, mm -hmm. Oh, you can cure everything just by sitting someone on a couch, talking to them. Maybe occasionally they snort some Coke or something as, as Freud liked to do, I guess. But, um, <laughs> you know, and then through, you know, there's like behavioral psychology and, uh, you know, B.S. Yeah. Skinner and all those folks. And then today we've got, you know, the exact opposite of Freud, which is give people pills and never talk to them again. Yeah. <laughs> and the question for me is have, you know, the, the rest of medical science has clearly progressed. We have not cured everything, but we have figured out how to cure so right. many or treat so many diseases. Have sure. we actually made progress in psychiatry? Well, you know, it's very, very difficult. Uh, this brings up the question of how we diagnose illness. Mm. And in the case of most uh, physical illnesses, we have tests, we have um, visual confirmation via scans, we have blood assays and so on that allow us to uncover um, a pretty good sense of what causes these illnesses and our um, definitions of illness are tied very much into our understanding of the underlying pathology. Mm -hmm. But in the case of psychiatry, we don't have that understanding. And so what, what psychiatry relies on to make its uh, judgments about what's wrong with somebody are the, the symptoms that the patient reports and the people around the patient reports. Yeah. So uh, that creates a, a grave difficulty because uh, it's rather the way you spoke of, of the era of the four humors and 
blood and bile and, and so forth being, being the operative factors. Uh, back in the 18th century, when doctors looked at patients, they, they said, do they have a fever? Uh, are their eyes yellow? Um, is their pulse quick? Um, they looked at those things and they didn't really have an underlying understanding. They thought they did, but they yeah. didn't. Uh, and so they would classify things. For example, they talk about somebody having a fever. Well, a fever is a symptom that could be caused by a whole variety of things. And uh, so lumping things together like that or talking about dropsy, which very often was caused by uh, heart problems, your heart wasn't pumping, but, but it could be caused by a multitude of other things. So the way they categorized disease back there then was very much based on symptoms. And that's what American psychiatry, indeed psychiatry everywhere, has been forced back on. And it's not clear that uh, judging by symptoms, you're really cutting nature at the joints. You're actually identifying real diseases. What you may be doing is lumping in many different things under a single label. Yeah. Uh, so when the term schizophrenia was invented uh, back in 1910, uh, the person who invented it, a Swedish a Swiss psychiatrist named Bloiler, didn't refer to schizophrenia. He called it the schizophrenias, plural, hmm. uh, because it seemed such a protean disorder with so many manifestations. Lots of psychiatrists now are beginning to ask themselves and have been for the last 20 years whether schizophrenia really exists. Hmm. One of the striking things when uh, the American Psychiatric Association published the fifth edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, big lot of words, we usually say DSM, yeah. in 2013. The then head of NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, Thomas Insel, uh, said this is a scientific waste of time. There's no such thing as schizophrenia. There's no such thing as depression. There's no such thing as a bipolar disorder. Well, the Scientologists will have loved that statement. <laughs> I know what he was getting at. The, the suffering is real. Yeah. The ways we've categorized it may not fit. And when you're chasing the cause of schizophrenia and maybe schizophrenia doesn't exist, you're not going to find it. You're chasing after something that's elusive and not likely to be found. So Insult's solution was to say, well, we need a new diagnostic system based on biology. And that's exactly what the American Psychiatric Association had hoped they could do when they issued this manual in 2013. But the reality was the science wasn't there and it isn't there. And so they're forced back on, on using symptomatic diagnoses. And diagnoses play a variety of roles um, for, for the scientists and for the patients. For the scientists, it may send them down the rabbit hole, down in the wrong direction. But for patients, getting a diagnosis, this was true in the 18th century when patients got diagnosed and then bled and purged, at least gave them a sense, oh, somebody knows what this is. Yeah. I have a label for these terrible things I'm experiencing. Yeah. And maybe they know something about how to deal with it. And that's not entirely false. But unfortunately, what we know is extremely limited. And looking back at the, the past, um, 
what we have to say in the 20th century is that desperation, that, that sense of we've got to have something to treat these conditions with, um, coupled with the fact that mental patients tend to lose agency. They're treated as things, not people. They're, they're, their wish, wishes, their, their beliefs are dismissed as pathological. And so they're a very vulnerable group. And what we see before the Second World War is a whole string of, of um, what the title of my book refers to as desperate remedies, attempts because psychiatry at the time, as today, thought things were rooted in the body, they looked to try to attack where they thought the pathology lay. Uh, an extreme example, uh, Henry Cotton and his followers, Henry Cotton was a superintendent of Trenton State Hospital in New Jersey, thought that mad people's brains were being poisoned. Hmm. And that's why they behaved and thought and felt as they did. Where was the poison coming from? It was coming from low-grade infections in the body that were releasing toxins into the bloodstream, the lymph, and poisoning the brain. Pre-antibiotics, what do you do about that? You resort to what Cotton called surgical bacteriology. When I translate that for you, that meant pulling the patient's teeth, taking out their tonsils, and when they didn't get better, arguing that they'd swallowed the germs down into their gut. Wow. So you took out stomachs and spleens and cervixes, in the case of women, and colons. There was this program of surgical evisceration, which killed, I, I know from my researches, uh, killed about 45% of the patients. Wow. Uh, who underwent the most serious treatments. And Cotton was proclaiming he was curing 85% of his patients, but actually uh, he was maiming and killing them. And that went on, well, in New Jersey, the pulling of teeth and tonsils and so forth went on until 1960. So all the wow. way up to almost the present. You know, I'm reminded of, and I think I'm going to talk about this in the intro to this episode, in my introductory monologue. But I grew up on Long Island, and near me, there was an abandoned mental oh. hospital um, on Long Island. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm uh, blanking on the name of it, uh, but it was a large... Pilgrim, perhaps, or Central Islip. Uh, say, say the name again? Central Islip or Pilgrim State Hospital might have been... That sounds right. Um, they were among the largest going in there. the world. I remember going there because I knew an older girl who was do who would do urban exploration and she took me into it once. We snuck onto the premises and we walked yes. around this abandoned asylum and she told me, uh, you know, this was once the lobotomy capital of the country, that they did more lobotomies here than than anywhere else, that, you know, hundreds, thousands of lobotomies were done. Um, and that's, you know, that always stuck with me as, you know, this was a Right. Extremely common treatment for certain mental disorders, but also certain things that were not disorders at all. There's the famous case of uh, is it Rosemary Kennedy, the, the Rosemary Kennedy, Kennedy sister yes. who yes. received a, an unnecessary or what we would now probably consider an unnecessary lobotomy. Well, was, I think every lobotomy was. Yeah. Unnecessary. <laughs> OK. I mean, it was. Yes. It, it won, of course, the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1949. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. And it had been invented, it had been first tried by a Portuguese neurologist who, who had arthritis, and he used a, a surgeon to in, inflict the first lobotomies. 
in Portugal in 1935, but it was brought to America uh, by a man named Walter Freeman, who practiced medicine at, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., um, and uh, his partner, who was a neuro, neurosurgeon, who were a relatively rare breed at that time. Um, and initially, uh, Jim Watts, who was the neurosurgeon, did, did the surgery. Freeman was a very impatient man, and he wanted lobotomy to become, he thought it was the cure for all sorts of mental disorder. Uh, and he became very impatient with an operation that took two or three hours and required lots of uh, operating theater and, and attending um, mm -hmm. uh, staff to perform. And he developed something called uh, the transorbital lobotomy, uh, which is one of the more awful experiments on the mentally ill that I can recall. Um, that involved using literally the first time he did it, an ice pick from his home. Wow. And a hammer. Wow. And he he zapped the patients twice with electroshock, which rendered them unconscious, peeled back their eyelid, inserted the ice pick into the bone, banged with the hammer to break through the bone. The bone is quite quite thin there, wiggled the instrument around, and then did it to the other eye. Wow. Uh, oh. So this was a lobotomy. Sometimes he did 20 or 30 of these in a day. Wow. He said any, he could teach any damn fool to do this in 20 minutes, including psychiatrists, for whom wow. he didn't have much regard. So this is, there were large numbers of lobotomies done. They were disproportionately done on women. Um, and that's a feature of many of these extreme treatments that I talk about in the book, that um, women, for some reason, are the ones, they were a minority a small minority, you know, it's almost 50-50 in the state hospitals, men and women, but women got almost two-thirds of the lobotomies. Wow. Uh, when and Henry what, Cotton did his operations, again, about 60% of his patients were female. Um, so that's itself a very interesting feature of this, how over and over again you see that, that pattern emerging, and a lot of us have tried to grasp why that would be. Um, and obviously, to some degree, uh, it was because uh, women were, who acted out were seen as more troublesome. Right. Um, and we're seen also, as Ill. with respect to lobotomy, the sense was that, well, you could return a woman to be a housewife, and that didn't require much initiative. That was huh. a pretty low-grade job. And whereas these men, they had to go back to work in the real world. And, and so the, the, I mean, Freeman recognized that lobotomy caused um, defects, but he argued that the defects were better than, than being psychotic. Um, and he persuaded large numbers of people and all the major medical schools, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Pennsylvania, they all had very active lobotomy programs in the wow. 1940s and into the 1950s. What was the theory behind this procedure? Like why, you know, <laughs> what was it meant to treat yeah. and why did they think it worked? A lot of these things were worked? very empirical, but the, the notion was, uh, at least among Egas Moniz, the Portuguese who invented this awful thing, uh, that uh, the frontal lobes were, were kind of 
the area where the executive functions of the brain lie, lay. And mental patient, the connections between those frontal lobes and the rest of the brain had got tangled and, and, and were um, working in a bad feedback loop. And you could interrupt it by severing the connections in the brain. Wow. Uh, so that was one theory. After the war, some many psychoanalysts, I should say, bitterly opposed lobotomy. They thought it was a category mistake. You, you couldn't cure a psychological illness by damaging the brain. In fact, damaging the brain was, they argued, quite criminal. But others of them yeah. actually provided a psychoanalytic explanation for why lobotomy worked. Huh. Uh, the frontal lobes were the superego. The ego and the id resided further back in the brain and the super wow. ego got out of control and so you had to cut it off literally <laughs> um, and there was a diagram in published in life magazine which was a big circulating magazine in the 40s showing exactly that it, you know it was a it was sort of a brain and they had captions coming out of it here's the super ego here's the ego boom we cut off this oh my muscle. god uh, thing that's ruining this patient's life. So, so that's wild to me because you've got, you know, what is essentially a pseudoscience. I mean, Freudian psychoanalysis, it has many things to recommend it, but I think the idea that, you know, the superego lodges somewhere in the, now we, it's nice to understand the superego as a literary device or, yeah. or a way of understanding sure. oneself, uh, mm -hmm. certainly not a physical place in the brain. And then that is interacting with, a, I don't know if you want to call it pseudoscience, but certainly bad science of the physical lobotomy. And then yeah. it's being spread in the largest circulated magazine in the United States within living memory. You know, like some of the people yes. who yes. committed yes. these, these, you know, atrocities are still alive today, right? Um, William Scoville at Yale was still performing lobotomies in 1970. Wow. And then he was killed in a car crash. <laughs> uh, he drove very fast cars, and on, on this occasion, he was by then in his seventies, and, and and he was killed, uh, which maybe spared some patients from his wow. attention. Uh, well, so but yeah, these are almost within. The, I've interviewed survivors. Um, there was wow. a late case of Walter Freeman's. Um, I I did a program. I was part of a program on PBS called Lobotomist, which was about Walter Freeman. Uh, based on a book by a, a journalist named Jack L. Hodge. And uh, on it, Freeman's children appeared, one of whom's professor of neurology at Berkeley, um, and a patient, uh, a young boy who was 11. His parents divorced. The new stepmother found him a pain in the ass. He acted out as 11-year-olds sometimes will when their parents' marriage breaks up. Yeah, he decided he should have a lobotomy, and Howard Dully, as he was called, uh, was taken at age eleven and given a lobotomy, which damaged him for the rest of his life. He's written an account of it with a with the co-author, um, and it was an enormously sad case. I mean, you looked at this and you thought, "My God!" Freeman operated on children as young as four. Wow, uh, and. Um, it just said, well, you know, children's brains are still developing, so we can do more damage to them, and they seem to recover. And they've been a pest and a nuisance. They're, maybe they're autistic in 
modern day terminology. And once we do this, they become placid and sort of like a pet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really extraordinary because all this stuff was appearing in the medical literature. Um, Freeman even made movies of him in action. And one of them was broadcast on television uh, oh. in the late 1940s. Now, very few people had TVs. But you couldn't yeah. broadcast that today. When when no. the, the when the uh, documentary was made about Freeman, they had that footage, and I talked with the directors whether we whether they'd use it, and they said, "Well, maybe we'll put it on a monitor in the background so people aren't focusing on it." And I think in the end, they just thought it was too disturbing. Uh, but this stuff wasn't hidden away. You know, it was widely publicized. When Henry yeah. Cotton was ripping teeth and tonsils and stomachs and colons, uh, the New York Times was publishing a review lauding him as a, a great medical benefactor, pioneer. He went off to England and the great good of British medicine compared him to Lord Lister, who'd introduced uh, antisepsis into surgery and allowed surgeons to develop Cotton was seen as the psychiatric equivalent. And in fact, what he was doing was maiming and killing everybody he set his hands on. Um, And it went on and on and on. There was an investigation undertaken by uh, Phyllis Greenacre, who later became a a leading psychoanalyst, but at that time was working at Johns Hopkins, the, the best medical school in the country under the best-known psychiatrist for the first 40 years of the 20th century, man Adolf Meyer, and she reported exactly what was going on, and Meyer suppressed the report. And not only wow. suppressed the report, but when Henry Cotton died of a heart attack, Meyer wrote an obituary in the American Journal of Psychiatry saying what a tragedy it was that this experiment had been cut short. So wow. really an extraordinary history um, and the you know, you'll see it. Um, one of the most gruesome passages in the book, and read it, I apologize to readers, but you need to understand quite how dreadful this was. Uh, uh, Freeman and Watts used to form lobotomies very often under, under local anesthetic. Um, the mm. pain, pain that the brain doesn't have pain threshold. So they drill through the person's skull and insert the knife and do their damage. And while they were doing that, they were talking to the patients because empirically they had decided that when a patient started to get confused, it was time to stop severing brain tissue. It was that cruel. And so I, I, Freeman recorded these things. And there's an operation on a railroad brakeman named Frank. And in the operation, he's saying, stop, stop. And they just keep going. Wow. Uh, and then another one, they're in the midst of the operation and they say to, they say, tell me, Mr. Jones, what's passing through your mind right now? And there's a pause. Oh, you're a comedian. You wait to deliver yeah. the punchline. Yeah. Mr. Jones says, a knife. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let, let, one, let, exactly. One way we cope with the horror and, and again, as a comedian, you'll know that difficult subjects, we deal with yeah. them with humor because the reality is so painful. 
that we just yeah. recoil and go, how could this happen? But it, this wasn't hidden away. It really wasn't. And yeah. after 14 years of this, the Nobel Prize Committee in Stockholm decided, oh, this is the major medical innovation of the year here. Unbelievable. We have to take a really quick break, yeah. but when we come back, I want to talk about how that incredible story bears on our current understanding of psychiatry and of mental illness um, and how how much more advanced than that are we really. But we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Andrew Skull. Okay, we're back with Andrew Skull, um, and we just got done talking in very gruesome detail about the horrors of mid-century lobotomies um, and that kind of psychiatric practice. And what really strikes me is, you know, th this was this was a pseudoscientific practice based on you know a misunderstanding of how the brain and the mind worked. And we like to think that we're more advanced than that. Again, even though, you know, the, the, this is again, still in living memory. This was only in, you know, this was yes. happening as late as the seventies. Um, we like to think we're more advanced than that. But when I think about, you know, how little we understand about brain disorders, about mental illnesses, about learning disabilities, about all of the different, you know, ills and differences of the mind, um, our understanding of neuroscience is advancing, but it's still very, you know, we're, we're describing the pine needles and we're not able to see how they add up to yeah. the forest in many ways mm -hmm. when it comes to neuroscience. We've got cognitive yeah. psychology, which is very interesting and promising, but is often, you know, uh, often ends up mixing metaphors with, you know, your brain is like a computer and that sort of thing. And, you know, right. sort of another misunderstanding of the mind. You've got psychopharmacology, which says, well, OK, this drug seems to work. We don't know why. <laughs> and it has right. side effects. You've got the DSM-4, which is or sorry, the DSM-5, excuse me, which describes symptom after symptom after symptom, um, right. including, you know, we talked on the previous episode of the show, I have attention deficit disorder or what's now called ADHD. And yes. that's a that's a condition where it's a bundle of symptoms. They don't know a cause. Right. They have various right. treatments. They, they know sure. they seem to work yep. for some people. They're not really sure why. Um, and so it, it makes me have to ask, like, are, are there procedures comparable to the lobotomy that we're performing today? Are there drugs that we are giving people where in 50 years we're going to say, what a horror that we did that, or at least yeah. what a mistake that we gave people yeah. these drugs for, yeah. for these conditions. Are there, are, do we, do we really understand the mind as well as, you know, right. many think we do? Right. Well, uh, this is obviously a, a fascinating area. I, I guess the first thing I would say is that the advent of the drug era was an accident. Nobody mm. expected, thought about drugs as a treatment for mental illness. They'd used uh, opiates to calm patients down. They'd used sleeping drafts to put them, put them, you know, when they're agitated. But the idea that drugs might actually treat mental illness, it was pure serendipity. Uh, a French company, Roncolec, uh, was messing around with antihistamines, looking for something that might work. Uh, initially, they thought uh, as a, a potentiator for anesthesia. If you've ever had general anesthetic, you'll know it's a poison. You're glad to take the poison as opposed to lying awake and, and sentient, feeling everything while they're cutting you. 
Um, but after you come around, until your body gets rid of the residuals, you often feel pretty groggy and nasty from the after effect. So the idea was that maybe uh, if they use a, a chemical which had first been identified in the 1880s in Germany and nobody had a use for it, but uh, if, if they use this, which was an antihistamine, they might be able to get away with lower doses of anesthesia and, and that that would help the patient. It was a reasonable hypothesis. They also thought it might be useful for a variety of other things, for example, for itching, you know, people have skin disorders. Uh, anyway, uh, in those days, there were no formal procedures around clinical trials. Drugs sort of just migrated out of the drug companies' laboratories. People were said, here, try this, try that. Um, and it just so happened that uh, a French naval surgeon tried this drug on some disturbed patients, and they calmed down. He said, well, it's like a chemical lobotomy, because lobotomy wasn't a bad word at that point. And he passed it along to a relative who worked in the major mental hospital in Paris. And it seemed as though it did calm the patients down. In fact, calmed them down to such an extent that the term chemical lobotomy wasn't completely misplaced. Uh, and it was from there that um, drug, that antipsychotic drugs emerged. Similarly with antidepressants. Um, they were trying a drug to treat tuberculosis, which is still a, a serious problem in those days as it's becoming again with drug-resistant versions. Uh, and they gave this drug, which they were hoping to use to cure the tuberculosis, to a bunch of patients with advanced TB who started acting happy. <laughs> How are these patients who are facing this grim future suddenly in this much better mood. And that was where the first antidepressants came on the scene. So these were accidents. After the fact, they started to say, well, why do these things work? And that's when uh, modern neuroscience began to emerge. So you're, you're looking at things after the fact saying, well, why is it that uh, Thorazine, the earliest of these antipsychotics, why does it work? And the so there was, at that point, the brain was largely seen as an electrical thing. Electrical signals between the cells were what drove the brain. Uh, instead, now there, there was this emphasis on discovering neurotransmitters, of which it turns out there are quite a few. Uh, and uh, so we got, after the fact, attempts to construct explanations of the disease because the drugs worked in particular ways on particular neurotransmitters. The most famous example occurred at the beginning of the 90s uh, when serotonin was alleged to be the thing that caused depression. You didn't have enough happy serotonin in your brain and that's why. Well, it turns out that's scientific nonsense. Um, the drugs do in, indeed, well, some of them affect serotonin and increase it, some of them decrease it. They both work equally well or equally badly. And there are lots of reasons not to believe that story. But as a marketing thing for the drug companies, that story was tremendously powerful. 
Uh, it also was embraced by patients and their families because it was somewhat destigmatizing. Yes, I remember in high school and in the 90s, I had friends who were on antidepressants and they would tell me, oh, yeah, it's because I don't have enough serotonin in my brain and this floods my brain again with serotonin. Yes. And, and the thing is, like, that, first of all, I now know that that's a very simplistic way of looking at the brain and is not, you know, there's only right. a couple neurotransmitters and like, you know, the, these things can't just it's it's like the four humors all over again. It's like you have too much bile, you have not enough, you know, black bile right. or whatever it is. Yeah. But I still hear people say that. And in fact, I, you know, yes. I hear people say that about modern drugs that, oh, you don't have enough dopamine or this floods your brain with dopamine right. or it's similar yes. sort of. Uh, yes, with and, schizophrenia, and, dopamine, men, many, but not all of the drugs act on the dopamine receptors in the brain. And that mm -hmm. for a long time, there was that narrative and people chased it. And um, uh, I've. Carlson won a Nobel Prize for his work on neurotransmitters. Mm. Uh, it became a very hot thing. And we've learned a lot more about uh, how those work in the brain. But uh, those stories uh, have been embraced by lots of people. Uh, and that they're a story still told by the drug companies. But scientifically, they're nonsense. Uh, but they are, as I was saying, there's so much stigma attached to mental illness. And when, when people are depressed, for example, the common reaction is, oh, just pull yourself together. You know, yeah. you just, this is ridiculous. Well, that that's completely, I mean, it, it's, it's not that simple. Let's put it that yeah. way for people who are badly depressed. Um, and that suspicion of them that uh, sense they might be malingering, this isn't real, it's all in between your ears. Um, to have a story that says, no, 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 there's something physically wrong with my brain and a drug can fix it. Yeah. That's a very powerful story. Yeah. Uh, it's one for the patient that says your illness is very real. It's not your fault. It's not your parents' fault, which yeah. is something that mattered a lot to parents of depressed children. Yeah. Who otherwise been told by the Freudians it was, you know, because they were refrigerator mothers or whatever. Uh, no, you actually have this deficiency in your brain and we can fix that with a pill. Yeah. Uh, lovely story. Wish it were true. Wish those <laughs> drugs worked without nasty side effects. But all of that is just marketing copy. It's uh, I think that it, science, but it's great marketing copy. It, and, it reminds uh, me of when you watch a, uh, a commercial for, you know, say a stomach uh, medicine yes. and it says, Oh, it goes down and coats the walls of your stomach. And they show you a little diagram of yeah. this cool blue liquid entering yeah. your stomach and sort of coating right. the edges and the angry redness goes away. And you now have a mental picture of when I take this, this is what's happening. And that's very comforting. And it helps you understand, oh, next time I feel that feeling, oh, there's an angry redness yeah. down there. I need to get the cool blue stuff. And sure. and this provides the same thing to people. And it's very comforting. But it is sounds very similar in many ways to, oh, the lobes of your brain have gotten snarled up and we need to yeah. separate them with an ice pick. Right? Yeah. it's You know, narratives are very powerful things. Telling yeah. stories about mental illness and where it comes from are, I mean, they're things that one of the problems for mental illness that all of us 
when we see it confront. It's so baffling. It's so alien. It's so distressing. It's so it disturbs the normal texture of being. It looks like people don't share the same common sense universe as the rest of us. Yeah. And to have a narrative that explains why that is, uh, is very powerful. That's why I think psychoanalysis, which enjoyed uh, a heyday in America from the end of World War II until sometime in the 1970s before it collapsed, uh, it told stories. I mean, Freud himself said, because uh, he was rather annoyed about this, he said, look, uh, what I wrote write about when I discussed these patient case histories sounds like a short story or a novel. Well, that's not my fault. That's not. Uh, that's because that's the nature of the disease we're talking about. Mm. So he was explaining and telling a story in terms of psychodynamics. These guys are telling a story in terms of brain biochemistry, but the brain biochemistry it, it just doesn't work. Again, when. When Insel stepped down, he'd run the National Institutes of Mental Health for about a dozen or 13 years, stepped down in 2015. And he gave an interview. And I thought it was a striking example. He's out peddling a book now about how we should move forward in the treatment of mental illness. Well, he was in charge for that long. He, he said, well, you know, I spent a lot of money while I was the head of NIH. Oh, he said roughly... $20 billion or maybe a bit more. And I funded a lot of very cool science, a lot of cool genetics, a lot of cool neuroscience. And uh, so far as the mentally ill was concerned, none of this did any good whatsoever. We, wow. we learned nothing that was clinically useful. The head of NIMH said, said suicide this. Suicide rates went up. Uh, life expectancy went down. And we kept plugging away, uh, pouring money down these holes. And his successor, Joshua Gordon, is doing exactly the same thing. Wow. Uh, and it's ex it, it extraordinary, you know, it's the old uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is, is sort of insanity. Um, not to say we shouldn't be doing some basic research along these lines, because it would, it would astonish me with the really serious kinds of mental illness if there weren't some biological component. But... It's wrong to put all your eggs in that one basket. Uh, Leon Eisenberg at Harvard once said something very witty, but also very profound. He said, we've gone from a brainless psychiatry to a mindless psychiatry, meaning ah. under the, when Freud was dominant, uh, everybody ignored the body. It was yeah. all a matter of psychology. When we swung back to biology, we ignored the, psych the, the social and the psychological yeah. elements of mental illness and just thought the whole thing was ex explainable in terms of damaged brains. You wrote in your introduction that since the collapse of psychoanalysis, that now something like, like a very small percentage of, of mental illness patients or psychiatric patients go through any kind of talk therapy at all. The ones who do predominantly pay for it themselves rather than have it be covered by insurance. Insurance covers it less. And yeah. many more people now are being prescribed drugs without any talk therapy, without any psycho, yeah. what we yeah. would formally call psychoanalysis whatsoever. Average, Is that correct? Uh, so we know that back in the 60s, the average encounter between a psychiatrist and patient lasted between 45 and 60 minutes, the classic mm -hmm. analytic hour. 
Nowadays, we're talking five to 10 minutes on the, the impact of managed care. Now, wow. it's not quite true that patients aren't getting psychotherapy, but they're not getting it increasingly from physicians, from psychiatrists. Mm. One of the other stories that I tell in the book is the, the rise after World War II of clinical psychology and the development of techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy and related attempts, which were quite different than psychoanalysis, that uh, psychoanalysis treated the symptoms of, of the disease as just the things that brought people to their attention and were, were the underlying causes weren't the symptoms. They were something much deeper about somebody's personality. Cognitive behavioral therapy and the kinds of techniques that uh, clinical psychologists use treat the symptoms. What they want to do is make the symptom go away. Yeah. And for certain things, we can see that and, and it actually seems to work. For example, uh, a lot of people are frightened stiff about getting on an airplane. Right. They have fear of flying. Right. And uh, they can be desensitized. Not everybody, but a significant yeah. fraction and let's, of people. And let's say it's not... It's not just yeah. being frightened as the partner of someone who who has faced this. It's it's yes. anxiety. It's panic. It's exactly. discomfort. It's yes. you're you're you need to fly, but you're in a total panic the entire time. Yes. You, and, you feel and horrible. Your body starts reacting. You know. Yes. You, you feel nauseous. You're, you're, you're yeah. tense. You're you're sometimes even vomiting out of fear. Yes. And uh, yeah. So uh, you know, analysts were scornful. They said, you know. When you treat symptoms, you're playing whack-a-mole. You'll mm. get rid of this symptom and another one will pop over here because you have, uh, you know, this is reflective of your underlying personality disorder. Uh, the insurance companies didn't like psychoanalysis. Woody mm. Allen notoriously has been in psychoanalysis for most of his adult or semi-adult life. Um, it goes on and on and on. Uh, CBT and its analogs, by contrast, have some basis in the laboratory. They seem to have some findings behind them. They're relatively short term. Uh, they work on the symptoms. And if you're lucky, the symptoms abate. Um, and uh, there you go. The second thing that attracts uh, insurance companies to this is that uh, MDs require a certain level of compensation. Mm -hmm. The PhDs aren't used to getting or are willing to settle for less. Mm. So clinical psychologists are less expensive. It tends to be a profession that's heavily female. And one of the things my sociological colleagues have, have demonstrated over and over again is when an, when an occupation become, becomes heavily feminized, it, its pay and working conditions suffer. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with paying a clinical psychologist, a hundred bucks for an hour session, you can't get away with paying an MD for that. So wow. those MDs who still practice uh, psychotherapy of various forms are a vanishing breed, but the ones that do it tend to not take insurance. And so it's patients with resources who go to them and are willing yeah. to pay out of pocket. Uh, so, you know, it's that's another complicated aspect of the story. Uh, and again, 
as with the drug treatments, CBT and uh, other kinds of psychotherapy, uh, well, one of the findings is it almost doesn't matter which flavor you get. Um, results tend to be very similar. You can get a watered-down version of psychoanalysis. You can get interpersonal therapy. You can get cognitive behavioral therapy. They all work about the same, even yeah. though they're quite different. Uh, and they all, all work only a bit. They work for some people, and they work for some conditions, yeah. but not for others. Uh, and there, there are so many things that re remain, you know, besides we've talked about bipolar and schizophrenia and depression, but, you know, autism is a major source of suffering and, and an exploding mm -hmm. condition. If you look at the statistics, whatever that means, um, ADHD, another one that's grown mm -hmm. tremendously, uh, children now being diagnosed with pediatric bipolar disorder and in a disease invented at Harvard by a dreadful man uh, <laughs> named Biedemann who was taking money under the table from the drug companies and publishing wow. work that really was non-scientific and uh, basically marketing copy for the drug companies for which he's being paid quite handsomely. Yeah, I've heard about that case. So, you know, you'll see that story in the book. Uh, Marketing has become a vital part of not just psychiatry, of course, but medicine in America. We all, yeah. if you sit and watch television for very long, you'll be bombarded with advertisements directed at you, the consumer, about a remedy for some disease. You talk yeah. about uh, stomach things, erectile dysfunction, you name it. They're Look, just it's on, it's on social media, you know, my, right? my friends it's are saturated. constantly the talking about saturated the media yeah. is those patients go to the doctors and ask for the drug. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's a very effective technique, even though those ads are usually lies. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, that whole line of disguising what really is marketing as science has its origins with Arthur Sackler of the Sackler family, who, as you know, were heavily involved in creating the opioid epidemic. Yes. Still sweeps the country. And Sackler was a master. He ran advertising agencies and he created a journal which looked like a scientific journal, but actually was paid copy for the drug companies. Yes. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens out there. A so. Lot. Look, so we've talked a lot about all of this bad stuff. And by the way, the ads are not just on television. They're on social media. I have so many They're friends who newspapers. everyone yeah, is, you know, see, you're, you go on TikTok and you you're bombarded with videos telling you that you have ADD. If you happen to lose your keys every so often or have trouble focusing during a meeting, you need to take medication like it's sure. And, and we've adopted it into our own practice as well. Like I, I have. You know, friends, even myself, I'll find myself parroting these, uh, you know, these sort of media claims. Um, but, you know, we've talked a lot about the negative parts of it, of how, you know, may, our, how bad our understanding is, how, you know, little mm -hmm. basis there is for many of these treatments. Um, but I do want to talk about, you know, there are millions of people making a good faith effort to understand yes. the brain better and to understand their patients. And right. there's millions and millions of patients who are 
simply trying to understand themselves better and who, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people right. listening who, right. you know, uh, take one of these medications, who work with a psychiatrist, who feel that it helps them. Maybe yeah. it doesn't help them perfectly, but they're trying to weigh, my God, are the side effects worth the benefits that I feel? Right. Um, and, yeah. you know, they, they need relief. And yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so how, how do we, how do we make our way through this system yeah, when we, sure. you know, desperately need these treatments and some of them claim to work and maybe do, but how do we tell the difference? Right, right. Well, a um, couple of observations. And of course, you know, living with a COVID world and all the social isolation that's come with that, mm -hmm. uh, reported levels of, of you know, mental pathology have, have been trending upward considerably, which shouldn't be a complete surprise. One of the real problems, I, I spoke earlier of these sort of three different groups of patients, a group of patients who benefit unambiguously, some for whom the trade-offs are very close and difficult to manage, and, and another group for whom these, these treatments just, just don't work at all. Uh, Part of the problem is we don't have at the moment any way to tell in advance which group of people a given patient is going to fall into. Mm. So one of the things that might be nice, and some of the defenders of genetic research have been, well, maybe we'll find something that allows us to predict before we administer the pills, which ones will work with which patient. Mm. Maybe. Um, it's a promissory note. Uh, would if you're suffering very badly, I'm not a clinician and I'm not giving people clinical advice, but I would look at it and say, um, for many patients, it's worth the gamble. And for some of them, that gamble will pay off and they'll be, they'll be improved, they'll, they'll feel better. Um, and uh, uh, besides that, you, you've got to have psychiatrists who are watching those patients very carefully, trying to figure out whether this is actually going to work in those cases. And if they need to taper off the drugs rather than stop them abruptly, you know, how, how to manage that. Beyond that, I'd say a lot of the problems of people with serious mental illness extend beyond the, the individual pathology. This has very profound effects on families, on communities, and on the patient, and we should be looking for ways to alleviate some of those problems, which are more social and psychological in nature, yeah. not so much physical. Um, and by neglecting those kinds of things, we are we are making, it seems to me, a, a big mistake. We're, we're leaving people with more suffering than, than need be because the remedies we have are at best a, a Band-Aid, a partial fix. So we, again, you can look to, you know, I I remember where I was. I'm not a big basketball fan, but I remember when Magic Johnson was announced to have AIDS. Mm -hmm. And AIDS at that point was a death sentence. Yeah. It's not a death sentence anymore. We we can't absolutely cure it, but we can make it a manageable chronic disease. Yeah. Years ago in the 1920s, when we discovered insulin, Diabetes among children went from being a killer, imagine watching your child die slowly, yeah. uh, to being something that's manageable. The problem is the symptomatic treatments we have in psychiatry aren't nearly as powerful as the drugs we have for AIDS 
or, or as uh, insulin is, for example. Uh, we, it would be nice if we were working towards better treatments, but as I stressed earlier in the broadcast, unfortunately, that seems to have reached a dead end for the moment. Uh, yeah. The incentives for Big Pharma are not to continue down that pathway, and so one worries about that. But as well, I'd like to see NIMH, which is the entity that sponsors much of the research in universities, spreading its money more broadly, not emphasizing solely and simply biology, but looking to some other ways we might alleviate mental illness in, yeah. the, in the moment. I mean, the social dimension is so important. You know, like I, I think about just to just to take an example from my own experience, um, uh, a, a member of my extended family uh, has schizophrenia um, and uh, he is, you know, lives in an institutional setting, but a pretty relaxed institutional setting and is well cared for because, you know, his family has the resources to make sure that he yeah. is. And so he's relatively stable. And, you mm. know, when I, when I see him on occasion, it's, you know, he's doing okay. Generally, you know, he has a, he has a relatively yes. good quality of, of life. I also work with, uh, you know, I volunteer with a, with a group that does street engagement with folks who are unhoused, who are experiencing homelessness yeah. here in LA. Yeah. And I'm very close with a woman who I've been, you know, visiting on the street for the past three years. And she has schizophrenia and her situation is almost hopeless because she is, she's tormented by, yeah. uh, tormented by delusions that she's being persecuted, that she, that are very real to her. Every so often she's, you know, picked up by the police. They take her to some sort of, you know, uh, psychiatric hold where she's given medication. She improves for a little bit and then she's put back on the street because she has nowhere else to go. And the, the, the county and state provide no other services. And when I see her after that, I say, hey, how are you doing? Are you are you taking your medication? And last time she I, I asked her that, she said, well, I, I can't take the medication because someone keeps switching my pills with with, uh, you know, yeah. and. And now she might, I believe, is having side effects from the pills, but also her delusions are interfering with her ability to take the medication. Yeah. And, you know, when people say there's this thing that people like to say in the United States about homelessness, that, oh, it's a it's mental illness. It's not, you know, it's not it really has to do with housing. Like, well, the difference in these two cases, both these people are receiving medication, but one right. of them has absolutely no social support from anybody, has no family, right. has no support yeah. from the state. Yes. Um, I, I, as someone who visit her once a week to bring her water and food, is is the, get, giving her the most care that, that anybody is that giving anybody her. is. Yeah. And no, so I that's, the shocking. social dimension is what's making the difference in her care. Yeah. When, when we shut the mental hospitals, yeah. we provided nothing in to replace them. There are, Community care is an Orwellian euphemism for ignoring and neglect. And what we see, so the largest single sites of inpatient care for psychiatric patients today mm -hmm. are the Los Angeles County Jail, the Cook County Jail, and Rikers Island Jail in New York. Yeah. Uh, asylums were built in the 19th century to rescue the mentally ill from jails and prisons. That's where we put them. And what we see you, you had a cycle of short-term psychiatric intervention back to the gutter in the street. Uh, the third wheel in that is people being sent to jail for extended, or to prison yeah. for extended periods and then being cycled back out. And, of course, once they have a criminal record, chances that they'll 
yeah. get a job, which already are low. Uh, so, yes, there's no social support for these folks. Public psychiatry was killed off uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the profession has moved, I mean, the bulk of the profession now treats other kinds of disorders. And the most that psychotic patients get is occasional prescriptions of pills. And pills may help some, they're not, not universal. But on top of that, these people have so many other needs. They have a need for human contact. They have a need for some sense that somebody's listening to them. They need a roof over their heads. They need yeah. that sense and, of security. And without having and those things, it, it deepens whatever uh, mental problems you may be having to exactly. not have shelter, to not have human contact. Um, and it's so striking to me that, you know, if you watch a, if you watch a movie set in the 19th century, you know, the asylum is depicted as, you know, a hellhole that was better left in the past. And yeah. maybe with some justification, I'm sure, I mean, we're, we talked yeah. about institutionalized lobotomy and all these horrible things, but the fact that now we have no, <laughs> you know, no centralized care whatsoever. And people are just dying on the street or being left to fend for themselves or, or receiving a drug after a five minute consultation with a psychiatrist. And then, you know, no follow-up is, is no, no better. It seems to me. Well, let me, let me cite a statistic that I think sums up how difficult the contemporary scene is. Please. People with serious mental illness live on average 15 to 25 years less than the rest of us. Wow. And that gap is growing. It's not diminishing, it's growing. If we were effectively coping with mental illness, that's not what we would be seeing. And it's really a, a terrible commentary on contemporary society yes. that that's where we are. So, so th this has been a very stark an upsetting conversation. I'd love you to find a little bit of a little bit of positivity for us. Either in is there are there any signs of hope that you see where maybe things are turning in a better direction, yeah. or what would yeah. you prescribe? You said earlier what you'd love to see NIMH do. Uh, what else would you love to see to to start to well, solve some of these problems? You know, it's it's interesting. I I think among some of the psychiatrists I know and respect there is a growing recognition that uh, this mo monistic approach, this biology above all, is not the way to go. Yeah. And the younger people entering the field, I think, sense how badly things have developed and would like to see things change. You hope that that will have an effect. But the problem that I would see, precisely because mental illness is not something we generally want to talk about. It's very upsetting. The realities are very grim. Uh, the chances people are actually going to recover from the really serious kinds of mental illness are not great, uh, although some people do, and I need to emphasize that uh, for reasons we don't entirely understand. So that's good. Um, but it's very, very hard to, in the political environment we're in, to argue for resources to go to this population. Mm -hmm. uh, we've moved in, I, I hate the kind of jargon when people talk about neoliberalism, but the idea that the market rules everything and that people should compete in the marketplace and it's their own fault if they fail, uh, all of that language um, 
if a, a, uh, an intellectual environment were arguing for actually helping people out of a sense of our common humanity is a hard conversation to have. Yes. I, you know, I, I almost despair when I look at the political landscape. It, it seems to be tilting in directions that are deeply troubling. When we look to Hungary, for example, obviously the awful situation in the Ukraine, um, the election that's happening right now in France with the possibility of an extreme right-wing nationalist mm-hmm. uh, winning the election, uh, these are these are really deeply disturbing. The, the whole uh, populist response uh, to difficult times seems to me to reside around simplistic solutions. And, and the idea that you're going to encourage people to be more humane more caring about one another is it you know we have to hope for that that's what we (laughs) will work towards while recognizing that in the contemporary world things look a bit bleak and we have to hope they'll turn around i love that as a i asked you for a positive note to end on and you were like well we have to keep hoping for positive things, even as things look bleak. Yeah. I guess that, that says a lot about you. I, I, are you depressed? And <laughs> um, no, you're a realist, thing. I think. Uh, very often people go into fields um, for deeply personal reasons. Mm. Um, and that really wasn't the case for me when I started in this area, God, 50 years ago now. Um, I didn't have a particular motive to get in it. Uh, at that, my earliest uh, academic appointment at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the head of my department, Renee Fox, was one of the last victims of polio and had been left crippled by it. Wow! And she studied medical sociology, I think, in part because it, you know, illness had played such a central part in her own life. Um, with me, that really wasn't the case. Um, it was more, I think, two things. Intellectually, I think this is a profound puzzle. It really is. It's, you know, trying to grasp mental illness and how to deal with it. Yeah. I, I've studied it now across over 2,000 years. My book before this one was called Madness in Civilization, and it traced everything from the ancient Greeks and ancient Palestine and ancient China all the way to now, looking at art and music and religion and politics, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a very, it's a very rich subject intellectually. The other side of the coin is there's an immense amount of suffering here. And we've been discussing that. Um, And our efforts, many of which have been very well-meaning, not all have been well-meaning, but many have been, our efforts often seem to have been counterproductive and that's a puzzle for me as a as a historian, trying to understand that and trying to, because I do think the past conditions everything we do. It's really history is our is our deep memory. If we lose it, we're like people who don't have anything but a recent memory, and we're very disabled by that. So it's important to understand the past, and the past can tell us some things. Yeah. Uh, some constants, some some worries, where things came from. How is it that we reached a situation that the mentally ill lie in the gutter or in the jail yeah. or kept in a psychiatric facility for five days and discharged again to repeat the process? Um, 
we can learn about that. And maybe if we learn to get back to your optimistic thing, <laughs> my hope is that being realistic, not being too pessimistic, but not disguising from ourselves the limitations of what we can do yeah. is, I think, the first step towards moving in a more positive direction. It's also, if we can understand those limitations, we can really get an appreciation for, in terms of our understanding of the mind and the brain, how much more there is to study and research yes. that it's still one of the most fruitful, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to be of benefit to humanity with, you know, your scientific effort, uh, you, uh, it's a wonderful field to, to try to research more about. It's one of the most popular majors that we have, um, yeah. you know, at least in the United yeah. States. And, um, hopefully if we take that clear eyed view that you propose, we can, you know, learn more about what is actually right. causing these illnesses and, and, and driving us. not, not keep making the same mistakes. Over yes. over. Andrew know. Skull, thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really fascinating, bracing conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I, I hope listeners find it uh, of interest. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you again to Andrew Skull for coming on the show. If you want to pick up his book, the URL once again is factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, and all the fine folks who are backing this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Whiskey Nerd 88, Tyler Darach, Susan E. Fisher, Spencer Campbell, Sam Ogden, Samantha Schultz, Robin Madison, Richard Watkins, Rachel Nieto, Paul Mauk, Nuyagik Ipaluk, Nikki Batelli, Nicholas Morris, Mom Named Gwen, Miles Gillingsrud, Michael Warnicky, Mark Long, Lacey Tiganoff, Kelly Lucas, Kelly Casey, Julia Russell, Jim Shelton, Hillary Wolken, M, Drill Bill, David Conover, that's my dad, thank you, dad, Courtney Henderson, Chris Staley, Charles Anderson, Camus and Lego, Brandon Sisko, Braden, Beth Brevik, Aurelio Jimenez, Antonio LB, Ann Slagle, Alan Liska, Allison Liberato, Alexi Batalov, and Adrian. Thank you all so much. And if you want to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. That's patreon.com slash Adam Conover. If you want to find me at the web, you can do so at adamconover.net. My tour dates are at adamconover.net slash tour dates and at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Factually. Factually.